0: Hi everybody. I'm Al, and I'm an Alenon. Hi, Al. A member of the Statesboro mostly men's. This long I've been there, I almost forgot the name. Uh, the Statesboro mostly men's Al-Anon group. Uh, we meet on Tuesday uh, after, afternoon at uh, six o'clock, and it's really great to be here with y'all today. Uh, John talked with you, but I have kind of uh, an identity problem, and I guess this what I feel as a part of this fellowship is about all I really need to do about, to say about where the family is. You know, for years and years I came around here and uh, I was Dr. John's son for all these years, I a little kid and, and everybody, and, every, uh, and then even when I got in medical school, everybody said, gosh, you're just too young to be a doctor. Everybody talked about how young I looked and now, um, you, you know you're getting old. Matter of fact, that's one of the things I probably won't get time to take, tell you about, but uh, I really have just come to grips with being an adult in the last couple of years and I'm not sure how well I'm handling it. But now people don't say you're you look too young to be a doctor. It's like, gosh, you've really lost a lot of weight lately, or you know, something like that. The whole uh, the whole thing changes. And I've had uh, had trouble accepting just being an adult. But I was Dr. John's son for a while, and, and then he died, and Mama would come to some of the meetings, and they said, oh yeah, everybody knew my mother. I said, yeah, you're Dot's uh, you're Dot's son. We really really like you. And, and then I think for one year I had an identity all my own in IDAA, and now. Bobby's in medical school, and everybody back this afternoon say, "Oh yeah, you're Bobby's brother. I know you." <laughs> and I have, uh, I have people, you know, come back from the young people's group and say, "Yeah, you're Carolyn's brother. We know her. She's just such a wonderful person." So, I hope one day I'll develop an identity all of my own, and uh, hope I don't have to go outside this organization to do it. <laughs> um, I wanted to, Mary Lou, I just, you know, I love. To hear what you say about that chapter, it's not so weird after all when you think about it. You know, this—just think about how perfect this book is, and think about how um, how desperately sick families are, and think about how genuinely accurate that chapter depicts some things about families, and think about how terrible it would have been if all the answers that Alman now has were in that chapter. And there's such a void in that chapter. That I can't imagine a better door open for uh, an organization like al to step into and um, and fill. And to me, that's a spiritual thing. Just looking at that, to have such a flawless book, have such you know, have such um, feel, you know, generate such feelings in those of us that are family members. And I think that's that's kind of uh, that goes right along. One maybe one step beyond the way I would make the judgments about a book, but it goes right along with the higher power that I understand, who's about two steps ahead. Of where, what I would have done if I was in the same situation, because if I was a higher power doing this book, I'd have probably made that a perfect chapter with all the answers in it, like the rest of the book has. But it just wasn't right, and I think time maybe has has borne that out. I'd like to so I think there really is a need uh, for for anon The chapter, the next chapter, chapter nine, I want to read a couple of excerpts out of that, but I really want to tell you mostly about how that chapter fits my life and my family's life because the title of the chapter, is the family afterwards. There were a lot of problems in our family in the family afterwards. So most of the problems that I remember were after my folks got help. I remember having a a lot of the gaps in our family life plugged up in ways while they were drinking that somehow satisfied my needs at the time. They didn't satisfy my needs in a way that I could have lived very comfortably through the rest of my life, but at the times, uh, you know, Daddy might not have been home to spend times with me on uh, vacations when we need him. So I had pony, I had plenty of toys, and in a sense, a lot of the material things became part of, uh, you know, part of our family life. And I, you know, I handled that okay. It was the only family I'd known. I known I didn't have anything to judge it by, and it seemed to be just fine. And then when they got sober things started happening, maybe a little before they got sober. But then when they got sober, I, I can't remember all these things because I tend to kind of push them back. But there are a couple of things that that did happen when they began to to get sober. First of all, my dad went away. And I'd learned, the, uh, the way I handled I was 11 years old when my parents got sober. So everything I'm, uh, I'm talking about is around that age for me. And that's an age where you don't have a complete value system yet. I'm watching my two children at 10 and 12 now go through this. And a lot of what I went through, uh, I'm using, I hope, to deal with some of the issues they're going to be dealing with in their life. And that's what this chapter tells us to do. It tells us to use our experience to correct the errors of the past. And I'm having a chance to do that through some things I've experienced in my family with my 10- and 12-year-old uh, children. But my dad went away, and I learned that when your folks go away, you know, it's hard to handle what might have happened to them Uh and the uncertainty of where the, what's going on at that time, I knew nobody was going to tell me the truth. I, I might have told you the other story the other night about the uh, the toy chest my dad made in occupational therapy shops in psych hospital. I'd say, well, where's daddy going? They said, oh, he's going off to learn a, learn to be a better doctor. And then I get a toy chest from an occupational therapy shop back, um, and it was, and I was very confused. I said, well, what do they do at those medical meetings, anyways? <laughs> and you. Know, the, you, you don't want to lie to your kids. Obviously, you might go to hell if you lied to your kids. And so they were telling me the truth in a technical sense so at least they wouldn't go to hell, uh, I guess. I don't know what was going on. but Because um, it really would... If my dad had gotten sober, and when he did get sober, he really was a better dad. There's no question about that. But I wanted to know, you know, where is Daddy? And what's he doing? And why don't I see him? And why doesn't he write to me? And what's this problem in our family? And I never got any of those answers. I got a, uh, an excuse... That, and I don't know that anybody knew any of the answers. I'm not saying that it's anybody's fault, but that's how confusing things were. And I fell right into that, uh, to that confusing confusion. And the way, and that's not the point. But the way I handle that as a young child is when we're confused, when we don't understand, the way we deal with that uncertainty is we just pick the worst-case scenario and we kind of compute up here: what's the worst thing that could be happening in a situation like this? And the worst thing, well, your dad's dead. And regardless of what people tell me, you know, that's what I computed. I said, well, if I accept my dad's death and he's dead, um, then no matter what happens, I'll be okay with it if I can deal with that. And that's how I handled it, especially the last time he was gone to to Lexington where he did get sober. And I remember accepting his death. I I don't remember telling anybody because the channels of communication had been cut off a long time before there. It talks in, in this chapter about the isolation of the family. And for an 11-year-old, if you don't have communication with your family, you really you really don't have very quality communication because your 11-year-old peers don't know what's going on, even if you will talk with them. And that, I identify with that isolation because that really did happen to me. And that's consciously one of the things I remember thinking at 11 when Daddy was gone is he's dead and nobody's got the guts to tell me and help me through it. Not only that, and one, re- one other reason I, I kind of, and I didn't think about this till I was looking at this chapter and how it, Im- how it impacted my life. But my grandmother did die. That was another thing that happened while he was in. Well, he was off in Lexington. She died, and until years later, as we began to d- discuss these things in our family, I was a teenager, maybe off in college, we never discussed my grandmother's death. And so I had assumed that maybe if my dad had died, nobody would talk with me about it because that's what happened when my grandmother died the first week he was in treatment. And then my uh, friends had to tell me about that. I had an aunt and an uncle who sequestered us off, and... Uh, took us to the beach. And when my grandmother died, we had a serious conversation with Uncle Bill telling me about death and about my grandmother wouldn't be alive anymore. And he was a very important person in my life for the comfort he gave to me through some difficult times. But my parents and I never never discussed that. I remember um, some of the horrifying experiences that happened after treatment had started, at least with my dad. Um, we were off... Uh, Drinking, My mother would drink on weekends, take us to my uncle's, and I remember one night running into a ditch and having to run a mile or a half mile or long distance through the pitch black dark to get help to come pull us out of the ditch. And I was horrified. I, I, could, I was loving, you know, and I saw all the animals jumping on top of me and all you know, I just knew I wasn't going to make it alive because I was scared at, at that time of being outside in the pitch black dark. And that was after he had gotten into, into treatment. I remember having that idea of his death being confirmed to me when he was finally supposed to come home. They said, your daddy's coming home and, um, and we're going to go to the airport in Savannah and meet him. If any of you heard his, his story, he talks about that trip home from Lexington. And we did. Uncle Bill and Aunt Honey, who had taken, us, taken care of us many times before, put us in the car and drove us to Savannah and we went to meet the airplane when my dad was going to come home and watched everybody get off the airplane one at a time, and finally the airplane was empty, and my dad wasn't on it. And again, I remember th- thinking, well, this is kind of their sick way of telling me that he's dead, and he's not going to ever come back. And I don't remember when he did come back. He came back the next day, and that was a really important part of his AA story as to what happened uh, on the other end of that. And I'll get to these events in a different light in just a minute, I hope. Um, the other thing, in the, in, in the face of all these things going on, when he finally did come back, we had to give up a lot of things. We can't, and, and not, and um, these things were. He had a, he had a '56 Ford Thunderbird. I mean, most beautiful, one of those beautiful cars I've ever, I've ever seen, and uh, that was one of the first things to go in his sobriety. He traded in that '56 uh, Ford Thunderbird for a stripped-down 1960 Ford Falcon. The Only option it had was backup lights, two little lights like this on the back, and that was, that was all. I remember it distinctly. And that was one other thing, because I had, I had gotten dependent on all those material things, even though they don't make love and they don't substitute for what a family needs to give you. You know, that was about all I could hang my hat on in my family at that time, looking back on it now. I'm, I didn't see a, a lot of this at, at that time. And even when they got sober, look what happened. You know, they were going out of town. I didn't see them as much when they got sober in AA the first few weeks or uh, the first few months or maybe years. Y'all heard C.D. talk at this meeting last year, and he talked about how he scooped my parents up and they went to an AA meeting every night. It wasn't like Statesboro now. We've got a little town of 18,000 and, and uh, 50 AA meetings a week. Within an hour or two, you can be at an AA meeting anytime you want to, except in the middle of the night. And at that time, you had to drive 50, 60 miles at least, and sometimes 100. And I remember uh, some of those long trips where they wouldn't get back home until one or two, three o'clock in the morning and uh, then they'd sleep in, or, or they had they'd have to go to work. He had to work a lot harder. We had a tremendous financial rut to pull out of. So I felt that I, I still wasn't seeing my parents, and they were talking about all these wonderful things happening. And there was still a sense of loss in me, and a sense that uh, whatever had gone on in addiction was definitely better, but there was still a void uh, in in my life, even after in the family afterwards, even in the in the recovery. I remember when my mother decided, when, dad, when my dad got sober, uh, he gave her the big book, she decided to get sober too. And so she stopped her pills. There wasn't anything like treatment at that time. She was taking her pills. She had her shock treatments. And I remember living in, the home, in our home with her when she went through withdrawal. I look on Unit 1 at Willingway now and, and, and sometimes look and say, I was going through some of that at home without any assistance of any kind of help or medical care or something. And that was another thing that I remember living in after recovery. I remember we stopped going on vacations. One of the things that uh, that we did, even through the, the worst years, was we went on vacations. We'd pack up and go to the beach. I mean, they'd been in another room and they'd, they'd drink all through the vacation, but we'd have a maid and we'd go to the beach every day and we'd go to the fair and we had a good time. We stopped doing that uh, when they got sober. We did. I don't remember, except maybe going to the mountains camping, uh, going on a vacation after sobriety. Um, that's not we. That that's not uh, in the later years, but in those first years, and it took about seven years for the uh, economy to get to the point where we had some flexibility uh, financially to live in the reality that that we that we had, and that was in a physician's family. And I wonder almost, I almost wonder how anybody can make it today, and I, I'm, it's impossible probably for anybody to make it without a program like this. I want to get to how this chapter addresses some of those things in just a second, but. Those were some, and there were probably some other things. But those are the things I just sat down and 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 looked at uh, in my family from where we were when after sobriety started. All those problems came on after sobriety started in our family, and uh, things things were um, were pretty bad if you measure it by that standard. But this chapter addresses those things, and I'm glad it does, and I'm glad I've had a chance to live with some people that have been able to address those issues, because those seem like some pretty hard issues to deal with. But every one of those specific things I talked about have, uh, have answers in this chapter. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts of the things that, in relationship to my story, mean uh, the most to me. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. I'm sure when I'm telling you those problems we had, it, you know, might say, "Man, that, that's kind of hard." But when you're dealing with these things every day, living in reality, it just doesn't hit what's going on. This is looking back 30 years later at what I was going on as a, you know, as 11, 11-year-old uh, kid. Secession of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained, abnormal condition, and that you know nothing could be uh, closer to the truth than that. Suppose we tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted, to good use for others. So one of the things that's been helpful to me is listening to the, the things that other families have been going through. We don't have very many normal families. When I'm talking with people with alcohol problems and try to get people to identify with a normal family, you flat can't do it. And um, I know my family's not normal and I didn't realize that until I started doing some talking and things. Trying to tell people what a normal family was—it was a hell of a time for me to tell people what normal is. And if you think you know what normal is, you know you, you need to kind of look at it because you might not either. I don't see how anybody could live in the kind of alcoholism I lived in and, and identify with normal. Matter of fact, normal um, is something that almo- it, we're almost uh, repelled uh, to, uh, which is another reason for for the issues that this chapter addresses. It will take time to clear away the wreck, and I'm looking. At my, life, I'm uh, I'll be 40 years old. God, I can't believe that next next month. <laughs> I tell you, I'm still trying to accept being grown up. So y'all bear with me. Um, and this was in, uh, and I was 11 years old. so This is 30 years, and and it astounds me at what I'm learning about recovery and myself, all the way up to the present. I mean, I just, uh, it just boggles my mind. And I, I won't. I'm sorry, we just don't have enough time for me to get into all those. Things. I wish I could tell you some of those issues that I'm dealing with and but there's some really incredibly important ones that it's just almost impossible to leave out of getting up here and talking but I just I don't have any, any choice but it does take time I mean in this case it's 30 years and so as a matter of fact if somebody said you're going to be feeling okay in 30 years um, you know how in the world I mean so you know that, that's evidence enough that we need a 24 hour program and it also it also tells tells me um, that it's not getting there because I'm not there yet. I can think of several things in my fa- in my life and my family that I'm not satisfied with yet. And if I wait until I'm satisfied with those, if I wait until my wife gets through with her um, with her masters and she can and she can be at this meeting with me instead of hibernating up at the library at UNC, and my kids get old enough so they don't have to go to camp so they can come with me. And well, if I wait for those things to solve themselves, um, I know I'll never I'll die unhappy. I'll never never be happy. Um, and so that statement there is. Uh, is really important. it will take time to clear away uh, the wreck. and I also am looking now at this not even being cleared away in my lifetime. One of the things, talking about insights and things you see about your disease i I, I hit with something at uh, at a meeting this fall on the family, and I kind of you know I kind of think of myself as I'm kind of an expert on the family and you know, I do a lot of talking about the family. I'm a family physician, I've got a fellowship in family medicine, and every now and then you get hit with something that hadn't occurred to you and I got hit with something uh, this this fall because I thought, and it gets back to the cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. I have felt like ever since my kids have been born that the one thing I could do for them was to not drink, and I've tried hard to have a lifestyle that doesn't need alcohol and drugs, and I really was kind of proud of myself. And then I started I don't know what it, well, I can't remember what I heard, but it, it hit me all of a sudden that that was really. Um, a bad way for an alcoholic to look at their recovery, and it was a pretty bad way for me to look at what I was offering to my kids too. And I started thinking about the times I came home from work, the quality of the time I was spending with my kids, and the way I was satisfying the needs that they had, that I knew I had and weren't maybe satisfied like I would have wanted. And I was real disappointed in uh, what I was giving to them. And I've had to change that. So, uh, and it was really important for me to try to do that, and that's in this past year that I've. And for example, I'll be leaving here tomorrow afternoon, probably maybe missing the meeting tomorrow morning, and I'm going to drive down to New Bern, uh, North or Rappo, North Carolina. I'm going to be the camp doctor for a week where my little kid is in camp. And it was a time where I would have never taken the time—you'd know, chalked off my schedule and canceled a couple of things—to do something like that. It would have seemed silly to be a camp doctor with all the other things I'm, you know, I'm doing, and. That's a little, I know it just seems like such an insignificant thing like a lot of these things do, but it's just been real, uh, real important for me to make some decisions like that in my life because I don't want this thing, if I can help it, to go any further into future generations than it, than it uh, has to. And I know it's not going to stop with mine, but I hope maybe uh, through my kids and their interest and their kids' interest, eventually uh, we might get enough help so that we can call ourselves a normal family, whatever that is. Um, we grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes, uh, thus becomes the principal asset of the family. And frequently it's almost the only asset. How could all that garbage be our only asset in life? And that's what, that's what that said. And that's so, uh, so true in, uh, in, my li- in my life now. And... Um, It also says many... It talks in this chapter about how the family is to deal with that alcoholic. It talks about some personality characteristics of the alcoholic. Um, One of those, it says, many alcoholics are enthusiasts. And, you know, living with my dad, if y'all knew him, that's exactly the way he was. I remember one day... And a lot of people say, well, Al, you're kind of like your dad was. But there's one person in town that knows that I'm not. It's it's our banker. I went into our banker one day and she said, Al, a lot of people say you're like your daddy, but... um, but you're really, really not." And I'd gone in, because we had, this was a couple of years ago, and we didn't know whether we are going to make payroll or not, and it was just, things got, just got really rough. And I was all depressed and wringing my hands, and just, um, just really didn't know how I was going to handle it. And I said, well, Sue, what's, you know, what do you mean? You know, a lot of people say Daddy and I are alike. She said, well, you know, whenever your Daddy came in here to borrow money, he de- definitely didn't look like you do and handle it like you do. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I'd ask him just what I ask you. He said, how much, how much money do you need? And he'd look back at it and he'd say, well, how much, how much will you give me? (laughs) And that's the way he, that's the way he dealt with his, with his life. And when you've, when you've become an emotional pack rat like I did in our family, living with some of that enthusiasm makes you kind of jealous. And I remember going through some years being jealous of what you folks had. And I'm, you know, I'm coming to grips with that now because I feel like I, I have an awful lot of it through my Al-Anon program, but I think a lot of people coming in see this and can be real and can get jealous, and that makes that can be an obstacle sometimes for for staying more involved uh, with us. We think it it dangerous if he rushes if he rushes headlong at his economic problem. And that really wasn't an issue for our family because they took Daddy's license away and uh, came down and arrested the nurse for practicing medicine without a license and he was in jail for six months, so I'd move on to another topic <laughs> with that one. <laughs> because <by the> t- <laughs> uh, But but dad but dad doesn't give freely of himself. Resentment grows, he becomes still less communicative. sometimes he explodes over a trifle. We really had a you know I think my folks emotional relationships improved through those years, but There was kind of a sense of reverence and distance and respect that my dad had because of his his addiction. And that, for years, left me at a little emotional distance uh, with him. That's uh, a a feeling that I've had. And it took a long time for us to get beyond uh, some of those feelings. But again, the closeness that he had with some of the A members uh, was something that I've envied because I didn't feel like I had that with my, my dad or my mom, even though we were a little closer. Didn't have those things until the last, until some of the last years of his life. This, um, since the since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism must remember he did much to make make them so. As each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admits them to the others. He lays a basis for helpful discussion. And I really, I, 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 of all the things I have to be grateful for, I think it's the commitment that the members of my family had to each other and to alcoholism through all these last uh, 30 years. I watch, as a family doctor, I look at families and question you know, the commitment that some people have to their families. And a lot of times, you know, like the big book talks about you know, boy meets girl on AA campus and those things, you see a... A fragility in families that really uh, disturbs me, and I, and I, um, I don't like that. I think sometimes people, uh, and, you know, that's a judgment that I make. I think people need to put that effort because uh, it's hard work. I'm in a family now with my wife and kids, and it's hard work being a husband trying to be a better one, being a father trying to be a better one. But um, I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in giving up that hard work today to go look for it across uh, in a fantasy somewhere. And I think uh, not just in In my own family's life, but in the other people I've known in this program and AA in general. I think that's one contribution that we have to make to society is this respect we have for for family. Um, And sometimes we joke about the musical families of addiction and all that, and I I don't, uh, you know, that that twists something in me. Uh, It also stimulates my gratitude for having the family uh, that I've had stick together and just the, the wonderful opportunity it's been. To grow in a family and now move into another family with my wife and kids and watch the transition and watch things come full circle. My dad's gone, but watching my brother get up last night and join IDAA and being a part of this. I mean, you know, that gives me the, the, um, you know, the beautiful perspective of something that's timeless. You know, if, if you hadn't been here long, you might think, well, where are we going to be next year or five years from now? And I think when you've watched this circle go around a couple of times, there's a serenity that comes with that. Uh, reality of, of the cyclic nature of what we're doing—that's kind of comforting, and it takes a while to to appreciate that. Assume, on the other hand, that Father has it has at the onset a stirring spiritual experience, and that was all my dad. I, I mentioned the, the airport when they didn't show up, and that was what was what was going on at that time. That was the the point at, in my dad's story where he talked about a spiritual experience, and I was befuddled when he came back and started talking about all that you know, Holy Rover kind of garbage or something. It took me literally years to understand what was happening there. And maybe there was some distance uh, that we developed initially because of some of those strange things that people were talking about. Um, and I'm glad that we had a chance finally to discuss those, uh, those issues. Um, let me... The alcoholic. This is in the last. I'm going to skip over several things I had outlined because we just don't have enough uh, enough time. The alcoholic may find it hard to reestablish friendly relations with his children. Their young minds were impressionable while he was drinking. Without saying so, they may cordially hate him for what he has done to them and to their mother. The children are sometimes dominated by pathetic hardness and cynicism. They cannot seem to forgive and forget. This may hang on for months, long after their mother has accepted dad's new way of living and thinking. In time, they will see that he is a new man, and in their own way, they will let him know it. I remember the first time I saw my dad after he came back from treatment, I, that was one of the conscious thoughts I had at that time, is this is a new man. I, it's the same body, but this is a different person that left our home six months ago. And I remember lagging behind as they were walking into church that Sunday morning, the first week he got back, and thinking that, and saying, I wonder what's happened. And that confusion that I talked about earlier began to melt into a fascination for something I didn't really understand. I didn't understand a lot. I thought AA was a bunch of paratroopers that he was going to meet with or something. You know, he was an 82nd Airborne, and they had an AA on insignia on their arm. <laughs> and he'd get drunk and tell war stories. So I thought it was all a bunch of paratroopers. It just took me six months to figure out, you know, what the organization was about. But even not, not, not knowing any more than that, I knew that something good was beginning to happen. But a lot of that hurt was still there. Um. But all that hurt I mentioned when I started talking has come back let me uh, there's one other thing I want to say because I, I tend to get kind of I thought about some of these things and I tend to get kind of kind of glum, but it says right here we aren't a glum lot if newcomers could see the joy or fun in our existence they wouldn't want it we absolutely insist on enjoying life and I really am that way but I you know but I think some of these issues I think about kind of kind of take a little humor out of it temporarily but I do have a good sense of humor and, and uh, don't tell jokes very well, but I like to laugh anyways Um... Some of these things that that seem so bad when they happen, if I had been a judgmental, I would have said all those things that I started out with were terrible things. And you might have been thinking, gosh, what a terrible thing. And you've probably got other things that are worse than that in your life. But every one of those events has become something really um, really important in my life. My dad went away, something as simple as him leaving. This past year, uh, I I had a chance to talk with a man that was influential, somebody that daddy was in blackouts and didn't even know. It's never in any of his stories. It's never been brought out anywhere. But one of his best friends in Statesboro was a historian. Dr. Jack Averitt uh, was a history professor who's written several volumes on Georgia history and is professor emeritus now at Georgia Southern College. And he was a person who was in- instrumental in getting Daddy into treatment. And it was an intervention. Even though nobody knew what interventions were, nobody had a name for them, Jack wrote down everything. He still has letters that he wrote to my Daddy when he was at Lexington. And Jack went to the hospital where Daddy had been committed, where he was drunk and drying out in Savannah. And took a list of all the things, just like we tell people to do an intervention, and said, John, and in a judgmental, non-judgmental way, they were good friends, and said, John, I want to tell you some things about yourself that um, that are going on, and I want you to look at these things, while well, I've got them written down in front of you, and see if this is the way you want your you and your family to live forever, or as long as you're going to be around, because you're going to die if you don't do something. And he read down the list, just like we do in an intervention, and that was a turning point that probably my dad never even recognized, but... As Jack told the the events that led up to my dad being committed to Lexington, he brought that out. And he, Jack didn't know what an intervention was either. He was just a historian doing what he thought was best. And I relayed to him, I said, "Do you realize what you did was something that we do a lot today, or that's done a lot today uh, in treatment?" And he had no idea, but he knew that what he was doing was the right thing at that time. And just the fact that my dad went away uh, helped me understand why it was important for those events to take place then. I, I'm glad. Because of the event of my grandmother dying, I've had a chance now with the death of my dad and my father-in-law this past year to spend a lot of time that I was really too busy to spend with my children when their grandparents died. And I wouldn't take anything for the communication that we had, and I don't think that communication would have meant as much to me. I don't think I would have taken the time if I had not experienced some of these things in my past uh, that I could examine. And like, the, like the chapter 9 says, we try to change those, uh, those areas. In the future, and I think my kids appreciated it. Helped us all grow, grow closer. The, the thought and the, the knowledge knowledge, my uh, adaptation to uh, to my dad's death, accepting his death. First of all, uh, when he did die, it was a kind of a joyous occasion uh, because I knew there was some things that went on, and I don't, I don't have time to get into all the things about his death. But I didn't have to grieve as much then. As I thought I might, because a lot of that had been accomplished back in the years before when he was when he was drinking. The other thing in his story, he began to talk about a spiritual experience that happened when he was when he never showed up at the airport uh, and in Savannah. And I realize now how important it is for a, an alcoholic early to put priorities on their recovery, and that helps me put priorities on my life. And if he was willing to do some things for his recovery that that were at the expense of his family. Then that tells me and should tell him where his recovery is because I wouldn't swap anything in the world for being left alone at that airport that night and him not show up. Um, as long as it meant a recovery for him and a spiritual experience that did happen that night. So every, every bit that I went through then was instant. The other thing is when he returned on the scene, all that was erased in, you know, in an instant. You know, my dad's alive. I didn't need the delusion of his death anymore. And so it was all gone and, uh, it, and the hurt with it uh, left over a period of time, but it it was, it was all gone too. The ditch thing, even the even things as silly as running, how could it running into a ditch be a good experience? Well, it. Um, a lot of people have trouble realizing how some of these events will affect a little kid's life. And that running in the ditch that night when my mother was drunk has come back on now as an event that's really important to me uh, in my in my life because it helps me share with people how little kids are impressionable. See, she wasn't drunk running the ditch that night. What happened that night, they had just worked the roads and when they worked the roads on a country road like that, it leaves a little ridge in the middle of the road. I don't know if you've ever seen those. And it wasn't her drinking that was the problem. It was that ridge caught the tire and it threw the car in the ditch. And I believed that for a long time because that was the story. (laughs) And when I started driving, and still I can ride down a road and whenever I ride down a dirt road that they've just worked, um, I see that little ridge, and I kind of stay clear of it. You know, I don't want to pick up the car and throw it in the ditch. And I'm sure, and that's one thing I recognize, and there are a million other things I'm sure that are implanted here in my subconscious and my value system that I don't even know are going on. So even that little experience has been has been bad. The, even the, the drug withdrawal, the, the vacations, for example, that we missed. Um, this became, we didn't have a chance to go on family vacations uh, like we used to. And so what we had to do is we doubled up and the AA Conventions became our vacation. It threw me in to these meetings with all, all these other people. My second girlfriend was an Alateen that I met at the Southeastern Convention before we started coming to IDAA. The, uh, the, um, this meeting and Southeastern AA Convention conflicted. And I built relationships and friends. And, and it, you can't describe the importance of hearing other people who have felt some of these feelings that I've had. And it, it helped dissolve the pain from a lot of those, uh, those things. Even, and even, and I became excited about going to these meetings. I didn't go with my folks at first. We didn't have the, the capability to do that. But I remember, and I remember some of the impressions I had of these meetings. For example, uh, I didn't get, the Indianapolis meeting was the year before I started coming to IDAA. I've only missed two of them since then. But I think one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to come to IDAA, because the only thing I remember that my folks said about IDAA, i not, I mean, not that they're, I'm mean, sure they're a lot of fine people. I'm sure the meetings were good. But I remember them coming back and they told me about the, the bar stools had seat belts on them. And I, <laughs> and you know, I, I wanted to go to one of these meetings to see what, you know, see what was happening at these meetings. And you know, not like the old places where everybody was lying. They said, sure, we'll, we'll start going next summer. And then we went to Air and I've been, you know, going ever since. And a lot of the impressions I have of the meetings, and I guess any child would, are not the things that you think are important. Um, they're little, little teeny things. I remember the long drive from Washington National to, to Air And I remember, um, Oh, I, you know, a whole bunch of, of little things uh, like that. Since, um, since that, those were in the in the first in the first six months or so of the recovery, but there's a lot that happens after that, and it would uh, it would go into it would take too long for me to tell you all those. But one of the things that has happened over the last couple of years, and it's taken that long, is for me to uh, is for some of the anger that I felt uh, as a child to to leave me, and uh, that I, I believe, through some experiences over the last couple of years have have really uh, have really changed. I was in I, I'll take just a second to tell you about what I'm beginning to call a spiritual experience now. I don't know that I, I I didn't know what a spiritual experience was. I never have been able to identify with one. I've heard my dad talk about it and uh, and as he as I traveled around we we flew together. that was one of the things we had in common. We flew to Denver, we flew to New, New Jersey, we we made a lot of our IDA meetings as I got into college and in medical school together in the airplane and had hours and hours uh, to talk. But in listening to his talk a hundred times probably as he went around to various meetings and I flew him there, I listened to that spiritual experience and I felt, you know, I said I, I just, I tried to make up some and I just could not identify with a spiritual experience. And something happened to me over this past year that has been, um, it's been real, uh, that's been real important. I was over, and it was about a year and a half ago, and last year I mentioned it uh, at the IDA meeting, but I wasn't calling it a spiritual experience, and I guess I will uh, begin to. But I was over in London. I had been asked to talk at a, at a, a, a meeting over there. Somebody paid my way uh, to a meeting over there, and it was just a real... One of the members here was also a speaker over there. I don't know whether Bill Mac is in here or not, but um, he knows the meeting. And that was a, one of the toughest times I've ever had and what was so hard about it is everything was so great. Here I was. I looked. I went to that meeting. Somebody had paid my way across the Atlantic to be in London. Had my wife with me. Beautiful, two beautiful kids at home. Um, wonderful job. First time in my life. Had a little money in the bank. Had um, my family. You know, doing. You know, doing great. Everything that you could want. Everything really that I had looked for in my life was was together. And. I remember going to sleep one night and say, "Okay, you know, this is—I have arrived. You know, this is it." And I said, "Okay, you know, what else is there? Boy, this is really—if this is all there is to it, you know, what have I worked all these years for to get to this place? And In spite of all those things that were going good, I was as miserable as I've ever been in my whole life. I remember having a—I uh, didn't think of suicide, but I remember having a depression and a panic attack and everything all at the same time, and I, I was literally shaking. And I've never done that uh, before." But that's just how, that's just how hard those few hours were on me. And I, I couldn't go to sleep. I tried to go to sleep. Um, and nothing would work. And finally, I, you know, I, I, um, I started praying. I didn't really know how, what to pray. So there was a Gideon Bible in the, in the bedside table. And I just, you know, didn't want to disturb Jane. She was asleep. So I went in the bathroom and just turned the 23rd Psalm. And I can remember reading, I couldn't remember it. So I remember reading it and, and trying to pray a little bit. And I just said, and it, and I remember asking God, to help me with what I was going through, I didn't know what it was, but I said, if you know, if you're, you know, if you're up there, if um, I don't, I didn't really put it put it like that, but I said, I need, you know, something's not working in my life. I've got everything a person could possibly want to be happy, and I just, and here I am, you know, you see me, and I, I um, asked for, you know, I I asked for some some help, really for the first time I ever remember de- doing it in that uh, honest way. Went back in the. In the room, and still was feeling pretty much the same way, and we went to sleep, and that was, you know, that was it. Woke up the next morning with a, you know, a profound change in my attitude about life, and I don't I still don't understand. I guess that must be what a spiritual experience is. I don't know because it stuck. I didn't talk about it for a year and a half or so, but I still feel that way today. You know, I don't really care. Um, you know, there's a time where I'd worry about what, whether you liked what I said or not, or worried about what kind of image I'm supposed to hold for IDAA or what I said to people or. Or what happens tomorrow, you know, whether the stock market goes up or down. And, and you know, some of those promises almost instantaneously uh, came into my life after that time. And I was prepared for that with, the pro- with, it, with this program. That didn't happen just that one night. I talk about it to, to shorten it like it happened at one time. But there were some people in this group that had prepared me, me for that. Several people in this room I had talked to. Several people that knew some of the pain I was going through. Because I went to some of these people and told them I was having a hard time. I thought some of the time it was an adjustment to my dad's loss. I thought it was uh, some problems me and my wife were having. I I'd really thought it might have been a lot of other things. But then finally, uh, every one of those people would direct it back at, you know, at me. And eventually it all kind of came to a crisis and it, you know, and it washed out through the help I got through this program. That's where I am uh, today. Today. But this big book doesn't have all the answers. You know, one of the things it says, it says we need to share from each other's experience. This chapter doesn't have all the answers for the family. The big book probably does have all the answers. It's going to tell you how the answer is my question. But I started thinking, what you know, what are my kids going to have to go through? A lot of my experiences come from growing up in an active alcoholic family. My kids aren't going to have that experience, but they do have the genetics. Uh, my kids are going to have some of the family stuff that I grew up with and don't know anything other than, but uh, they don't have the recovery in in uh, in their lives, like I had as an alateen, that they uh, are dabbling in, but probably won't have the excuse without my recovery to be involved in. And there, you know, not a, there are a lot of those kind of issues going on. The things that have nothing to do with basic, you know, kind of big book stuff. But you know, that my little boy likes to watch ba- uh, baseball games, and he's getting bombarded between all the innings with beer commercials. You know, that's something as simple as that, as practical as that, as a is one of the important issues I'm dealing with. He, he's kind of addicted. I watch his his addictive personality, uh, my little boys, come out in the computer. you know, And that's something that, you know, they weren't, were none of those around when they wrote the big book. And I wonder how those things are going to affect him. And I that's one of the reasons I'll be coming back to this meeting, is to do what chapter 9 says we're supposed to do, and that's sharing with other people, to find out what other people have done and what mistakes you've made, so that maybe I can... Use some of those mistakes as I pass some of the information along to my kids that will allow them to do some of the things in their life that uh, we need to do as a family to survive with this illness. And that's where chapter nine means, uh, what chapter nine means to me. And I appreciate you just being here because it helped me see a lot of this stuff that I hadn't, I'd known but hadn't really thought about and put together. Until I started looking at Chapter Nine uh, in in reading over it for this meeting, and I appreciate your contribution to my recovery for doing that to me. Thank you very much.